0: Hello, this is Ian Wolfe, producer of Diffusion Science Radio. You can now support Diffusion through the Patreon support page at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Send me a message about the supporter awards you'd like to receive. Or make a donation directly with the PayPal button or click on an Amazon affiliate link at www.diffusionradio.com. Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, little satellites and hunting asteroids. But first up, here's the news. Chronic fatigue syndrome identified by GUT. Researchers have identified markers in the blood and stools of people with chronic fatigue syndrome that have allowed them to correctly identify people previously diagnosed with the disease with 83% accuracy. The study was led by the Liberty Hyde Bailey Professor Maureen Hansen and Associate Professor Ruth Lay in the Department of Molecular Biology and Genetics at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. They've shown that the gut bacterial microbiome in chronic fatigue syndrome patients isn't normal. Chronic fatigue syndrome is a condition where normal exertion leads to debilitating fatigue that isn't alleviated by rest. Diagnosis currently requires lengthy tests administered by an expert to rule out other illnesses. This has led to people being accused of having a psychological illness or false illness belief and treated in a way that makes them sicker. While people don't die of false beliefs, people have died of chronic fatigue syndrome. Symptoms of chronic fatigue syndrome include fatigue even after sleep, muscle and joint pain, migraines, and gastrointestinal distress. One hallmark of the condition is that patients may take weeks to recover from minor exertion. To test for chronic fatigue syndrome, specialists may give patients an exercise test where they ride a bike until they become exhausted. If the test is repeated the following day, chronic fatigue syndrome patients usually can't reproduce their performance from the first day. Healthy people, on the other hand, or even people who have heart disease, can reproduce the exercise on the second day. Graded exercise is about the worst possible thing you could force onto most people suffering this disease. And in the UK, police have literally broken into people's homes and taken them to psychiatric institutions to be forced into graded exercise programs, where some have died. In this study, Ithaca campus researchers collaborated with Dr. Susan Levine, a chronic fatigue syndrome specialist in New York City. She recruited 48 people diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome and 39 healthy controls to provide stool and blood samples. Using a supervised machine learning approach, the researchers sequenced regions of microbial DNA from the stool samples to identify different types of bacteria. Overall, There was less diversity of types of bacteria, and there were fewer bacterial species known to be anti-inflammatory in patients with Crohn's fatigue syndrome compared with healthy people, an observation that was also seen in people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. At the same time, the researchers discovered specific markers of inflammation in the blood, likely due to a leaky gut from intestinal problems that allow bacteria to enter the blood where they can trigger an immune response which can worsen symptoms. At this time, the researchers don't have enough evidence to distinguish whether the altered gut microbiome is a cause or a consequence of the disease. People with chronic fatigue syndrome have reduced levels of members of the dominant bacterial phylum, Firmicutes. This reduced level is also seen in Crohn's disease patients. Proteobacteria were more abundant in people with chronic fatigue syndrome than in controls, which was also seen in inflammatory bowel disease patients. In the same way, there's a severe reduction in the amount of anti-inflammatory Fecalibacterium, which is also reduced in people suffering inflammatory bowel disease and ulcerative colitis. There's also a decrease in Bifidobacterium, which is also seen in irritable bowel syndrome and type 2 diabetes. Altogether, the researchers say that their results suggest that the people suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome have ongoing damage to the mucus lining in their gut that's allowing microbes to move around where they shouldn't, triggering inflammation. People with chronic fatigue syndrome don't have as many different types of bacteria in their gut as healthy people do. A better idea of what's going on with these gut microbes and patients might allow clinicians to consider changing their diet using prebiotics such as dietary fibers or probiotics to help treat the disease. Therapies aimed at reducing local inflammation, restoring gastrointestinal tract immunity and integrity and modifying the intestinal microbiome may help reduce chronic fatigue syndrome symptoms. The team will next look into replicating the study with a larger group and investigate the role of fungi and viruses in the guts of people with chronic fatigue syndrome and how they differ. From healthy people. The paper was titled Reduced Diversity and Altered Composition of the Gut Microbiome in Individuals with Myalgic Encephalomyelitis, Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, and was published in the journal Microbiome. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com, we're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Space, the final frontier. A warning that the sound on this interview is a little distorted, as if I was recording over a phone line. The iRig pre-amplifier I've used for the last year and a half has been making the sound a little buzzy. At the Orbit Oz Space Entrepreneur Meetup, Tom Croston gave a talk on the QB-50 Little Satellites. Tom is a mechanical engineer working on the Little Satellites which will eventually form a part of the International QB-50 Constellation of Satellites. I began by asking him to tell me about the satellite he's building. So the satellite is
2: being built by a team of people at the University of New South Wales and it's a part of a larger international mission called the QB-50 Satellite Mission to study the thermosphere.
0: And when we talk about a little satellite, how little is this sort of, it's a CubeSat, right?
2: Yeah, it's little. It's um, roughly the size of maybe a shoebox, maybe as long as a shoebox, but about 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters. But it fits a lot into it, packs a real punch. It's a very very science dense spacecraft.
0: So you're sending it up into the thermosphere?
2: yeah so until now the thermosphere is a relatively unexplored part of the atmosphere it's hard to reach with an atmospheric balloon it's very difficult to take in situ measurements with with observation satellites so it's being launched from the ISS at an altitude of about three hundred and thirty kilometers from there it will its orbit will decay and its altitude will drop lower and lower and In that time, it's going to take measurements at various altitudes, but mainly between sort of 90 and 300 kilometers, which is a very, very unstudied part of the atmosphere at this point, yeah.
0: And so what sort of things are you going to be
2: studying? So there's various instruments in the QB50 mission. In the case of UNSW, the payload is a ion neutral mass spectrometer, which we're looking for The density of both atomic and molecular oxygen, as well as molecular nitrogen and nitrous oxide, which are all pretty abundant at this altitude. But it's also going to be measuring the temperature, too. So, both important data sets that we don't quite have yet.
0: When this satellite is launched with all its little payloads on board, how are you going to orient it when it comes out of the ISS? Hopefully, when it's
2: deployed from the ISS, it won't be tumbling too much. It'll be a relatively stable piece of a spacecraft. If it is tumbling a little bit, there is a, a unit inside the spacecraft called a, a magnetorquer, which is two perpendicular electromagnets, which when activated, work against the Earth's magnetic field to apply a torque in two directions. And this can help to detumble and stabilize the satellite. It can take a, quite a long time, though. It could take two or three days before it's in a stable attitude.
0: And how does your little satellite transmit its information back to you?
2: So on board there is a UHF antenna and a and a transponder. Anyway, it's got it's got a a, a gum-based nanocom subsystem which transmits data via the antenna back to a ground station here on Earth, there are actually three ground stations, one here in Sydney and one in Strasbourg, France, and then perhaps one in Colorado, I'm not sure.
0: And how long will the satellite live for before it burns up?
2: (laughs) We're not quite sure. It's hard to nail down an exact figure, but it should be between 12 months and 18 months expected but it's hard to it's hard to say for sure.
0: And how's it powered?
2: It's solar powered. There's roughly 6 solar panels and these 6 solar panels charge two batteries on board and we're mostly certain that this will be enough power to keep the satellite running and to run all the payloads effectively.
0: And in your talk you had a whole slide about why this is important
2: so I, I think this is important because there is a, growing, a there's a growing expectation that commercial space will be a viable industry within the next 10 20 years uh, so there is a, a growing need for small spacecraft and a, a growing a growing necessity for this technology and These two satellites that are being built domestically can demonstrate to the rest of Australia and the rest of the world that we have uh, the means and the ability to design these satellites domestically. And we're ready to be a part of the growing industry worldwide and we're ready to to contribute some new innovation and, and new science. Because Australia has a history of being a very innovative country. We have a history of being we have, we have a history of contributing very ingenious, ingenious ideas to various things and I think space could be the same. So this really is a message to, to Australia and everyone else that we can do it, we have the ability and we are doing it. I think there's still a lot of unknowns out there with these, with these spacecraft and I think that it's fantastic that we're being involved because I think there's, there's still a lot of interesting challenges and a lot of interesting problems that can still be are still out there to be solved when it comes to small spacecraft.
0: Your prototyping on 3D printers, will, be, will you be also be sending things up that are made on 3D printers? So
2: the team has developed a 3D printed structure for the satellite, which is something quite novel and hasn't been demonstrated in detail before. So I think this is quite a quite an important milestone for small spacecraft demonstrating that these structures can be built with 3D printers and they can be modified and we can iterate the design effectively as opposed to more traditional technologies where you may buy a machined structure or you might have something manufactured in some other means laser cutting or whatnot They were very expensive and you couldn't modify them after you had them. But 3D printing and rapid prototyping means that you can print a structure. You may need to modify it in some way. So you you could do that via CAD or whatnot. And then have another iteration printed. And all of a sudden you have a
0: newer structure which is more tailored to your needs. And it used to cost millions of dollars to send up satellites and then more millions just to develop the satellites themselves. What sort of scale does this project cost? So a satellite of this
2: size is significantly more affordable than traditional spacecraft. A lot of the components can be bought off the shelf from various vendors that are selling them. A lot of the work on this particular spacecraft has been done in-house, so the cost has been minimised in that sense. But So it it can still be quite expensive. The mission will probably cost something similar to a European sports car, but that's nothing compared to traditional spacecraft or traditional missions. So uh, I think it's an important demonstration of very cost-effective space hardware.
0: And if any listeners want to build a satellite, do you have any advice for them?
2: It's still not an easy road. I think definitely do a lot of research going in and really build an understanding of what's required because although it's marketed as quite a simple thing, CubeSats are often marketed as um, off-the-shelf rapid-assembly sort of products, there are still quite a few technical issues that may arise. So there's a lot to learn. Well,
0: Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Tom Croston, talking about the little QB-50 satellites. Still at Orbitoz, asteroid hunting. About a year ago, I spoke with William Crow about his PhD project, which involves swarms of tiny robot spacecraft. This year, William is the CEO of his own startup, High Earth Orbit Robotics. I met William in Redfern Park, so there's a siren in the background for 30 seconds that couldn't be edited out. And like the previous one, this interview sounds a little buzzy because it was recorded with my brand new iRig preamplifier, which turned out to have exactly the same problem as the old one. A replacement for the replacement is on its way. I began by asking William, what is High Earth Orbit Robotics?
3: High-Earth Orbit Robotics is an asteroid intelligence company so we're looking to know more about asteroids because there's about 700,000 asteroids known in the solar system and we know a great deal of less than uh, 20 of them.
0: So less than 20 asteroids are known and there's probably an enormously greater number of asteroids.
3: Well. It's more like uh, 20 asteroids have detail known about them. So they've been photographed uh, close up and we know something about what they're made up of, things of that nature. Whereas most asteroids are sitting in the asteroid belt or near Earth, but we just see little points of light when we see them rather than uh, anything greater, a few pixels even.
0: So do we know how many of those we've found so far?
3: Absolutely, there's about 700,000. But yeah, there there are probably millions and millions more that we don't know about yet.
0: So you've got to image at least 700,000 of them.
3: That's right. That's right. Although there are a few little tricks and that's, I guess, where our business has sprung from.
0: So what's the demand for images from asteroids as a business?
3: Sure. At the moment, it's more scientific demand. As so little is known about asteroids, there is... A bit of demand in that area. But I I guess the greatest demand in the future and the one which makes this business viable is asteroid mining, which is becoming a thing.
0: Yeah, so there's Elon Musk and there's various other companies that would like to mine the asteroids. If only they knew which ones to go for.
3: Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's a couple of different asteroid mining companies specifically. And uh, yeah, a few other big companies like Uh, Elon Musk, SpaceX, that could definitely use the resources to power their greater visions.
0: And asteroids regularly head towards the Earth?
3: Yeah, that's correct. So in the last 12 months, we know of 40 that came closer than the Moon, and there's probably even many more than that that we just did not see at all that passed close by. So if they come that close, doesn't
0: that make it cheaper to mine them than if they're very far away?
3: Absolutely. So Delta V in traditional missions is... A lot lower but what we've found in our company is that you can do uh, very cheap flyby missions of these asteroids so that allows you to take photographs and spectral images that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get
0: right and you've had a kickstarter running
3: recently yeah that's right so uh, what we've uh, found that even though we're engineers and the majority of our team has phds now actually it's still difficult for us to know a lot of information about these asteroids. And the information's out there; it's freely available, but you pretty much need to know what you're doing in order to f- sort of figure out the information. So, what we've done is centralized all this free information and also added some graphics, made it a lot easier to uh, to know about and. Uh, because we uh, exceeded our initial goal, we're actually going to take photos of most of these asteroids as well. You'll only be able to see the pixel, but it will be an interesting pixel, we hope. And what are the
0: ways that you're looking at the asteroids? You've got, what, ground-based and space-based?
3: Well, yeah, for the, in the future, we're looking to have spacecraft that do flyby missions. That's just so we get the uh, high-resolution photos. And... Uh, We're looking to use uh, ground-based telescopes at the moment which are great for initially discovering asteroids and also for picking up a little bit of spectral data about the spectrum that's sort of given off by these asteroids.
0: And so people can sign up for a service to find out about the asteroids?
3: Well at the moment they can go to our, our website, we'll have all this information freely available there. Um, there is a subscription service uh, that we also do, it will be free uh, in about a year's time for anyone to subscribe, but for the first year uh, it's exclusive to our backers, so unfortunately everyone else will have to wait a year until they can get on board that.
0: And originally you had ideas about swarms of little robotic spacecraft, is that still the aim?
3: It's- more of a constellation of spacecraft now so the swarm of spacecraft is still the i'm I'm doing a phd currently and that's still the main aim of that phd and it's actually why i was looking to do super cheap flyby missions of asteroids and then i stumbled across all this data that's only recently come to light and spawned a, a business out of it which is fantastic so The swarm led to the flyby missions rather than the swarm being part of the flyby missions. There are a bunch of asteroids that we don't know about, so I think it's super important that we uh, cover as much of the sky as possible every night and uh, try to find as many as we can because there there is the kind of Earth impact scenario where one does hit Earth, and we've only actually discovered two asteroids before they've hit Earth in the past, and one of them might have not have even been an asteroid. It might have been an old rocket engine casing. So we don't have a good track record there, but we probably should, and we should probably uh, try and mitigate this kind of disaster a bit better because uh, the consequences are dire. <laughs>
0: and if people want to look for High Earth Robotics online, what's the website?
3: Yeah, they can go to www.heorobotics.com.
0: William Crowe, thank you very much Thanks Ian That was William Crowe from High Earth Orbit Robotics Hunting for asteroids At Physics in the Pub Astronomer Fred Watson played his guitar And asked, why is Uranus upside down?
4: Why is Uranus upside down? Why is the planet the wrong way round? Why is Uranus? Why is it upside down? Now I think a rock as big as the Earth knocked it over soon after its birth Why is Uranus? Why is it upside down? Old William Herschel saw the light Found Uranus one starry night Thought he might gain by naming it after the king George III Then he discovered its ring Now Saturn and Neptune are gas giants too They don't have names that are quite as rude Why is Uranus, why is it upside down? What's in a name is often said And I ought to know with a name like Fred But Uranus is a name that's always been fatally flawed Why didn't they just call it George? So why is Uranus upside down? It's too ashamed of its proper noun. That's why Uranus. That's why it's upside down. Poor old Uranus. It always wears a frown. How is Uranus? Why is it upside down?
0: That was Why is Uranus upside down? From Fred Watson's album An Alien Like You, visit FredWatson.com.au for more. That's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your own voice on radio? We need more people contributing stories to diffusion. Send your contributions, standing ovations, helpful suggestions, and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com and please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Check out the Patreon page patreon.com slash diffusionradio Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2NVR in Nambuc Valley, and 3NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, then you can explore more than 850 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash diffusion radio i'm ian wolf join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on diffusion science radio
1: science is fun it helps you to learn to know and to appreciate when you study science you may go on field trips you discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits.